Well, this was, a, um, this was a busy week at our house, an eventful week, because we dropped our oldest daughter off at college for the first time, and um, so there was uh, lots of tears shed, and I was a blubbering mess throughout the weekend, but um, as, I, as I began to think about dropping her off at college, I was thinking about some of my own experiences in college, and so this morning, I want to share some of the experiences with you that I had while I was in college. One of the first that I want to share with you was when I was a freshman at Georgia Southern, I was invited by Campus Outreach to go on the hard man's retreat. Now, I know what you're thinking as you look at me as I sauntered up here on stage in my pink shirt. Of course, they invited you on the hard man's retreat. That's the perfect description for Andy Wozniki. And yet, the hard man's retreat was this awesome weekend where the CO staff guys challenged us to this battery of outdoor physical activity to test our manhood and to talk about Jesus. And it was awesome. And by the end of the weekend, the whole thing was sort of capped off by trying to hike to the top of Table Rock Mountain in South Carolina. I don't know if you've ever been there. But there's a trail that's marked off with handrails and a gravel path if you want easier, safer access to the top of Table Rock. Table Rock. None of us were interested in taking that route because there was also the opportunity to free climb. Now, you had to have a guide, but what the staff were challenging these young guys to do was to come alongside them and free climb up Table Rock. Now, all I can remember about that climb was about 45 minutes, it felt like we were no closer to the top than when we started. I felt like my muscles were on fire. I didn't have the right clothes. I had on these ratty tennis shoes that were filling up with dirt. I had to keep emptying them out. All my legs, my calves, my thighs were just burning, and I wanted to quit. But thankfully, we had a guide. Because just as we were all about to give up at periods throughout the trip, this guide would take us to this clearing in the woods, and we would see as the clouds parted and the trees parted, the top of Table Rock. And he would say, look at that. There's the summit. That's where we're headed. Look at that view. Look at the vista. And so suddenly we'd sort of have new energy to keep going. And our guide would say, we'd start again. We'd be stressed. We'd be anxious. And then all of a sudden there'd be another clearing and he'd point, he'd shout, he'd say, there it is. Look at that. Look at Table Rock. That's where we're headed. So what I want you to think about as we dive into our passage this morning is something like that. Paul has been up to something like that as a guide for us through Ephesians chapter 4 and now into chapter 5, where periodically he's pausing to say, I know that the journey called living the Christian life can be perilous and difficult, and many times you want to give up and stop. But I want to just pause for a moment and remind you of the summit. I want to show you the view again. So the verses, the two verses we're going to look at this morning are not the table rock, but I would consider to be the Mount Everest of the Christian life. And so we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and I want you to consider the summit that Paul is showing us here. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. It says, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
Let's pray together. Well, Father, we confess that most of the time when we show up at church, we're just kind of trying to put one foot in front of the other. Life is busy, it's hard, and so it's really tempting to hear your word and have it go in one ear and out the other, to not be changed by it, to not really meditate on it, to not ask, Holy Spirit, how would you change me through your word? And so I pray that because your word is living and active and always points us to Jesus, that you would be here with us this morning, Father, that you would speak to each heart, that you would help us to be free from distraction and to dial in. Only you can open hearts. Only you can change us. And I pray that you would do that through your word and your spirit this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Mount Everest... It's the highest mountain in the world. So that means that if you're standing on the top of Mount Everest, you're literally standing on the top of the world. There's really no way to know if anyone in the ancient world ever got to the summit. But what we do know is that in the 1920s and 30s, people started to map out some expeditions to try to explore how they could get to the top. And then in 1953, the ninth British expedition, it was led by a guy named John Hunt, got to within about 300 yards, 300 feet of the top of Mount Everest, only to have to retreat because of a lack of oxygen. And then just two days later, a New Zealander named Sir Edmund Hillary finally made it, standing on the top of the world. What an incredible accomplishment. I mean, until 1987, only 200 people in the history of the human race had been able to do it. And now, even now today, it's really a relatively small number of people. It seems so unattainable. Why would you even consider it? And now here we are in Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul is saying something to us that I would suggest sounds really unattainable on the surface, and that you might be tempted initially to think, well, what in the world does that have to do with me? You might look at it the same way you looked at that QR code. What am I supposed to do with that? Here's what he said, be imitators of God. I want you to just let that sink in for a minute. (laughs) Be imitators of God. Is that crazy? You might think to yourself, well, I'm not a very good Christian, and so that seems totally unachievable to me. Or you might think, well, I'm not a perfect Christian, but I'm more of an imitator of God than a lot of the people that I live around or a lot of the people that I work with. So why would God expect anything more from me? I'd say that train of thinking is so common. And it's one of the two big errors that Paul is addressing in this text. What Paul is driving at, I think, in this text is this, is that salvation, from a biblical perspective, is more than just knowing that your sins are forgiven. It's certainly that. But salvation is not just some get-out-of-jail-free card. And then I think that salvation is also not just behavior modification or being conformed to some ethical code, but Paul is telling us here that to experience Christianity, yes, means that your morality will be transformed, but it's to experience God. It's to know God. It's to travel with God. It's to being invited into this throne room of grace, not to stand at a distance, but to come up the mountain. For our lives to begin to imitate his life as dearly loved children, to see him, to know him, 
That's what this passage is all about. Paul is our guide. He's taking us to a vista on our journey. He's pointing through the overlook. He's saying, there's the view. And so what is the summit out in the distance that Paul wants us to take in? It's our redemption, fully accomplished and fully applied. It's your whole life rightly aligning and pointing to and reflecting God, made whole again from the inside out. Is that your horizon? Is that the beautiful view in front of you that you long for? I wonder how that directive hits you this morning. Imitate God. The word imitate in the Greek sounds a lot like our English word mimic. Mimic. To to mimic means to copy someone, to see another person, to get close enough where you can observe them, and then to copy their actions. How in the world would we copy God? How could we imitate God? You know, if your coach tells you, hey, here's a more experienced, older player on the team. I want you to mimic him, copy him, imitate him so that you can grow. You might think, well, I can sort of do that. You know, if you're in residency or in a classroom or on the ball field, you might think, yes, I can mimic, I can see. But how does somebody imitate God? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I've got two big points. One is what does it mean to imitate God? We've got to understand that first. And then secondly, how can we do it? How can we imitate God? So let's study together. The passage actually starts with a clue word. If you're a good Bible study student, you've picked up on this a number of times, but the word is, therefore, be imitators of God. So when you see, therefore, Paul is pointing back to something that he's already said in a previous passage. And here he's pointing to a vista in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And here's where Paul says that God has given us various spiritual leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Listen to this. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so the first clue that the text gives us here is that God has this ongoing project. It's a journey that his people are all participating in together, going up the mountain, trying to summit. It means that God is active and that he has this summit in mind for us to reach together, something that we're meant to attain. And it's this, a unity of faith a deeper knowledge of the Son of God, but a mature manhood. So the building up of the body, to be a part of the body, has something to do with maturity and growth. This is where God wants to take us. How tall are we supposed to grow? Well, God says the measuring stick that he is holding up next to us is the fullness of Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I want you to think about that. It means that to imitate God is not just knowing more facts about God or becoming better each week in your life. I'm a better person this week than I was last. But instead, it has something to do with the fullness of Christ. Another person's life filling me up, that person is Christ. This is the same vision that John the Baptist begins to realize. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. And so for starters, to imitate God is a group project where our lives are somehow becoming more filled up 
with the life of another person together. And that person is Jesus Christ. So let's keep building on this foundation. We get another clearing in the trees, so to speak, another peak at the mountain in Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24. Follow along. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and listen, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, we know that this verse, Paul also has the same summit in mind because he's pointing to this reality that you are created to be like God. You are to imitate God because that's how you were created. And so in what sense am I to be like God? Well, he tells us in the passage, he says, in true righteousness and in true holiness. Now, those two words, righteousness and holiness, are only tied together like this two places in the Bible. This is one of them. And when those two are tied together, what they're pointing to is a life of virtue and integrity and purity of life, lived out for God, with God, empowered by God, specifically lived out in a person's life. That's the, what we've been talking about through our series over the last four weeks, where in our sermons, we've talked about a life that's characterized by purposeful, others-oriented work and generosity. That's what it looks like, that my words would have compassion rather than bitterness and vindictiveness, that my, my, my words towards others would be rooted in truth and encouragement rather than lying or gossip or tearing apart. The word righteousness literally means here the way things ought to be, the way things were intended to be. I love Paul's honesty in Romans 7, if you're familiar with that passage. He says, when I look at my life, it's not the way it ought to be. The things that I want to do that God created me for, those are the very things I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do that I know are evil and wicked, those are the things I find myself doing. I love to picture just a huge television. Picture that in your mind with like a thousand inputs and outputs on the back of it. And this huge jumbled mess of cords. They're all, it's a huge knot. None of the cords are in the right ports. Some of them aren't connected at all. You think, who could possibly untie all of what's happening here? And because they're not plugged in, the, the TV remains powerless. Until one day someone can un, untie it and streamline it and plug it ba back in so that each cord begins to find its power source again. Do you have that picture in your mind? That's the summit that's what Christ is doing in our lives. That's what he's intending to do to make us fully live and operational again means in a flesh and blood sense that there's a correctness to our thinking, a correctness to our feeling and our actions. That's what it means to imitate God. That from the inside out, my life is redeemed and begins to image and reflect who God originally designed me to be. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. Put right out of your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and then to try to carry it out. 
as man may read what Plato or Mark said and then try to carry that out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are praying, is doing things in you, interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you, and replacing it with the kind of self that he has. At first, only for moments, then for longer periods. And finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which shares his power, his joy, his knowledge, and his eternity. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is something is simply nothing else. Let me ask you, is that your Mount Everest? Is that your horizon? Or do you dream differently? Is it just about getting the kids out of the house and having enough in your 401k and living a happy life here? That Mount Everest will not satisfy. I want you to know that what Paul is saying at the top of this mountain is to imitate God. To imitate God means to be on a journey with other believers towards a deep maturity where you are invited to share in the life of God himself, filled with the fullness of Christ and remade into the people God originally designed you to be from the inside out. You know, I, I came to Christ my freshman year in college. Well, I trusted Christ mostly because I just didn't want to go to hell. That was the big idea for me. And yet, as I got into my sophomore year, Christianity was really hard. It was draining. It was a burden. There was no joy. And that's because the focus in my life was so often on the value of the things that I was surrendering. I had to give up this relationship. I had to give up the parties. I had to give up free time. And I, didn't, I kept thinking about all that I was giving up. And how could I possibly sustain this? And yet, I read mere Christianity, this passage, my sophomore year, probably a hundred times, over and over and over again. And so many of the other passages in the Bible that I've been looking at and studying, suddenly the dots connected as I thought about this reality, that this is an invitation, that when God is saying, imitate me, he's not saying, I intend to take something from you, but to give you something. I intend to give you a full life. Come, share in my life. I want to rewire you from the inside out. And when that horizon started to take shape, I began to hear Jesus' invitation the real way. I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. So is that your horizon? I want you to know this morning that even though that was the first time it clicked for me, that this has been a lifetime journey of trying to get a hold of this reality and keep it in view. That just when I think that I've got it and I understand how my justification and sanctification work together, suddenly I lose it again. And I'm like, God, I need you. But this is what we're to know along the way. Lewis says, if you want to get warm, stay close to the fire. If you want to get wet, you got to jump in the water. And if you want joy, power, peace, and freedom, you must get close to the thing that has them. And so what I'm trying to say is we don't wait until we have it all figured out. We dive in. We draw near. We move towards God. 
And so number two, how do we imitate God? How do we draw near? How do we begin to imitate God? The first thing that Paul tells us is as dearly loved children. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And so what do dearly loved children naturally do? They imitate. They mimic their parents. I'll bet almost every father in this room could go dig up a picture of their little child wearing shoes that are too big for them to wear, or they've got a jacket on where the sleeves are down to the floor. These are a couple of my own kids dressing up like one another and mimicking before they know one player on the team, they're cheering for dad's team. That's how it works. Because dearly loved children love to imitate. They love to push the little toy lawnmower as dad's doing yard work. This is the beautiful picture that that Paul invites us to consider as we think about what it means to imitate God. He doesn't want you to think about this as some overburdening moral imperative that you'll never achieve. He's saying, I'm inviting you into relationship. It's the only way that this makes sense is in the context of intimate relationship. How do we imitate God as dearly loved children? Employees can be fired for not performing. If you're an athlete, you can be cut from the team if you make too many mistakes. Students can receive poor uh, poor grades for insufficient work, but not children. Children are always loved. They always carry the family name. They always share in the family meals. They always share in the privileges of being a family member. Imitation is a vital part of growing up to maturity. And so when Paul wants to talk about how someone will begin to imitate God, it's always in the context of intimate relationship. The only proper paradigm for this, con- this command to be understood is in the relationship to our sonship. Our sonship, which means that you don't imitate God in order to earn his love. You don't imitate God to try to perform or keep his love You imitate God because you are loved. And so the whole point of this to say is as loved children. Paul's been building this throughout the the, the whole book. In chapter 1, he says, In love you were predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, he says, This love is the great love with which he loved us. And we are made alive together with Christ. It's this picture of new birth into a family. And I want you to notice how our status as children is always tied to our relationship with Jesus because that's how our identity as God's son is only is possible because through the connection to his life, his death and resurrection, we have sonship. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, there was this thundering voice that boomed down. If you know your Bible, you know what it said. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so that's where sonship starts. God is well pleased with the son. And so then as we draw near to Jesus, as he goes to the cross for us, our identity is with him. We're chosen in Christ, adopted in Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, alive with Christ, and brought near to Christ because on the cross he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness and his holiness. And we become the dearly loved children of God with whom he is well pleased. So this is the hope of glory, the summit, Christ in me. 
And so to finish this point, point two that we've already started, how do we imitate God as dearly loved children? And number two, by looking at Jesus. Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us. It's meant to turn our eyes immediately towards Jesus. If we're to imitate someone, we've got to draw near. We've got to see them. We've got to look at them. Philip has this this same issue in John chapter 14. This is one of Jesus' disciples. And, And he's like, I want to imitate the Father. I want to know the Father. Show us the Father. And what what does Jesus say? He says, Philip, oh, if you've seen me, then you have seen the Father. See me and you'll have seen the Father. And so Jesus is saying, step one is to consider the relationship between me and my Father, that we are one, He is in me, and I am in Him. Now, I want you to hear this staggering invitation that Jesus makes to the disciples. So, abide in me, remain in me, my words in you, and then you will be in me, and I in you, in the same way that I am in the Father, and He is in me. Do you see the invitation into relationship? And so this idea of walking in love, living a life of love, putting on, putting off, remaining in, abiding in, it's virtually all the same metaphor. It's union with Christ. The only way to get up the mountain is life in his spirit, union with him. 1 John 3, 2 says, we, when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Seeing Jesus makes us like Jesus. We need to see him and then we will be like him. How do we stay connected? How do you stay connected now that Jesus isn't here with us in the flesh? I mean, I think if I was one of the disciples, it'd be so easy to see what Jesus is doing and then to imitate him. How do I do that today? You know, whenever the Bible talks about seeing Christ And living in his spirit, it brings out two things. It brings out his word and it brings out his people. Christ is the word made flesh. The words that we read are the words of Christ. They're the word of Christ. He says, abide in my word. Let my words abide in you. We need to see Jesus daily in the word. To imitate God, to imitate Christ, means that his word becomes central. It becomes a priority in our life. And the second is God's people become a priority in my life. God works through his word and through his people. And so I want you to see this this idea of imitating God's people. Listen to 1 John 4. If you guys are reading in our CBR, we read this chapter this past week in 1 John 4. He says, dear friends, if God loved us this way, we also must love one another. You can almost, it's almost a repeat of Ephesians 5 2. Listen to what he says next. No one has ever seen God. How can you imitate what you can't see? You know, it's seen. I can read about Christ in his word. How do I put flesh and bones on what it means to follow Christ? It says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Remember that summit, the fullness of Christ perfected in us, a life of maturity. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. In this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Listen to this. For we are as he is in this world. 
He's saying this reality of imitating God is available now. It's not just down the road. It's also now. But it's tied and tethered to this idea of Christian community. That in order to see God, to know God, I must be in committed, loving, sacrificially generous, others-oriented, interdependent relationships with other believers who are confessing Christ and imitating Christ together. And when that happens, we move towards the summit. This is the only way that any of us made it to the top of Table Rock on a free climb. It's because we had a guide who belayed all of us together. And he was so careful. He would say to us as we're tied together so that none of us would fall, watch that rock. Hey, that branch is loose. And we're just kind of doing exactly what he tells us to do, all tied together. And then as we got about halfway up, what we began realizing is we were all saying the same things to each other. I was turning around to the guy next to me. Hey, hey, don't step there. I just stepped there. Be careful here. This is what it means to imitate God, to imitate in community. That's the picture. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me? He is not bashful about giving this directive. Mimic me, follow me, imitate me. Wouldn't your first instinct to be, no, 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 no. We should not be saying things like that. I am a sinner, okay? No one should have the confidence to say, be like me. How does Paul say that? The only way that he can say that is if his life is aimed at Jesus Christ. The only way that any of us can say that is if we believe that part of following Christ is following other Christians whose lives are directly faced towards Christ, wholly directed towards Christ. And so is your life aimed at Christ? What's your Mount Everest? We're so skittish about this. And so then because we are, because we're afraid of this, we lack the confidence to bring people into our lives in such a way that we would allow them to see us and observe us. But that's what it means to disciple. That's what it means to follow. It means that we bring people in up close to the nuances of our lives, where we're following Christ. Where do I need to walk by faith this week? Where am I needing to trust Christ this week? Where am I bringing his promises in front of me to guide and direct me this week? In difficult situations, where are my spouse and I missing each other? Where do I stink in my parenting? You see, to, we tend to envision that before we can disciple anyone or be imitators of anyone else, life needs to be better, less difficult, more tidy, less messy. And Paul is saying, no way. No way. Your messy, busy life is the context for imitating Christ and discipling others and walking with others in the faith. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1.6. <laughs> he keeps going. He says, and you became imitators of us. This time it's not just Paul. It's Paul and his group of faithful followers and believers. He says, you became imitators of us and the Lord. And then listen to this. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. The believers in this church in Thessalonica became the example. That means that because when they received the word in much affliction, that it wasn't the easy, nice, tidy life. To receive the word and trust it by faith when your life is filled with affliction means you got a messy life and it's busy and it's hard and it's not tidy. And yet what he is saying is that when they did this, their lives became the example that needed to be seen by others. That's the vision of Christian community. Brothers and sisters opening their lives in the midst of whatever you're dealing with right now. Not when it gets easier, not when life slows down, not when all the kids are grown up and out of the house. What you're dealing with right now is what some other believer in this church needs to see as you relate to Christ and trust in his promises in that context. How do you follow Christ as a new mom? How do you follow Christ as a struggling spouse? How do you follow Christ as an empty nester? How do you follow Christ when work is so busy? Paul says, follow us as we follow Christ. Did you know that when I was a growing college student in my faith at Georgia Southern, so many of the people that had influence on my life had grown up at West Georgia, the University of West Georgia. Mike and Sandra Heron, Clinton Peggy Watson, Ken and Teresa Curry, when I was a college student, I was in every single one of their living rooms, their messy living rooms, with little ankle biters all over them. When they were arguing with each other, and when Clint had forgotten to unload the dishwasher, and yet as I watched them trust Christ and bring Christ in front of the marriage, it gave me something that I needed because I grew up in a broken home. I didn't have that picture. I didn't know what it looked like to trust Christ. You know that those families that I just named, about 30 years ago, they worshiped in this room, in this sanctuary. They were here being spiritually formed, growing up in their faith. And God sent them out. And my life intersected with their life. And they opened their home. And they let me in. That's the picture. Here's what he says. This is such great joy. Why would we want to miss this? Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, same chapter, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that now we, we don't have to say anything. It's like Paul is anticipating that he's got to go and make his journeys all over the world. And suddenly he's like, whoa, my kids have grown up in the faith. They, they've realized the summit, and they're out there doing it. Isn't that the proud parent? John says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the faith. And so what I'm calling you to do today is hard. It's, you're busy. We're all busy. There's no greater joy. Do you see that? You see what's happening here? I want to I close with this challenge. It's Hebrews chapter 6, in verses 11 and 12. He says, we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope. 
the final realization of your hope, there's the summit, so that you won't become sluggish, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. I want you to demonstrate the same diligence. We might say, I exercise hard. I diet hard. I take care of my material possessions. I save my money. But with regard to my spiritual life, I'm not that diligent. And so you're tempted to withdraw and isolate. And what he says here is, the solution is spiritual community. You get in spiritual community. That's the only way to get to the summit. And so is that your vision? What's your Mount Everest? It's time to disciple and be discipled. We got to open our homes. We got we to... Gotta, we got to open our Bibles. We've got to open our schedules. No more sluggishness. No more half-heartedness. No more waiting till life slows down. We're going to open our hearts and our lives and our schedules and our homes to spiritual community so that we can live a life of love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When I think about all those families and all the people that have mentored me over the years and the, the sacrifices that they made with their schedule and time to let me come in and see their messy lives, it's a fragrant offering. It's a beautiful sacrifice. And by Christ's Spirit working in you, it will be a joy for you as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we feel challenged and convicted by this imperative to be imitators of God. And we realize that that's a calling that hangs as a banner over our entire life and should reshape our priorities and our schedules and our times. It means opening up windows to be with you in your word daily. It means opening up time to be with your people. It means being discipled and discipling others. God, this is so challenging. And yet what you're inviting us into is the life of Christ. You're inviting us into Trinitarian love. You're inviting us into mature manhood. You're inviting us into the summit. God, would our lives, as we take steps of faith this semester with regards to community, would our lives begin to more and more reflect and radiate the love of Christ as dearly loved children. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.